You don't have to raise your hand. Just want you to think a moment. How many of you here this morning have any stress in your life? <laughs> Some people feel the need to raise their hands. <laughs> it's all right. Everybody, everybody qualifies. If you don't have any stress in your life at all, anywhere, you don't have to stay for the message. Okay, but if, but if, if there are things in your life today that are causing you stress, I have a message from the Lord this morning that I want to share with you that I think will make a difference if you combine it with faith and believe. Okay, All through the Bible, there are some interesting themes that just kind of run. They run from start to finish, and they're just there. And one of those themes that comes out through the Scriptures is the theme of rest and peace. It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the Gospels. It's all through the Epistles. You know, you just read them. Psalm 23. What does Psalm 23 bring to your mind? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. There in David, you know, um, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, he's writing a psalm longing for and experiencing the peace of God. You know, it's a great promise throughout the prophecies of Isaiah. Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul speaks of it. Uh, all, even Peter says, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Rest and peace are a theme that runs through the Scripture for a reason. Every generation of every group of human beings needs rest and peace. When you think about those terms, what comes to your mind? They're related, but they're not exactly synonyms, at least not in the English language the way we use them. We tend to think of peace as more of a uh, internal quality, more of a, a mental, emotional quality. Peace is the absence of disturbance, isn't it? It's when everything is, is quiet. Um, still waters. I, I remember vividly times when years ago I used to do a lot of canoeing. And I enjoyed that because, I mean, canoe trips where I'd be gone for days at a time. And I enjoyed that because uh, you didn't have a motor attached to the boat. And you could, uh, uh, sometimes you had some challenging water. That was not peaceful. But you could meander through, uh, you know, mountain streams that were flowing into the valleys or whatever. And, and just every once in a while... We would come, I, I usually went with a friend of mine, and we would come to an area of still water. And there's one image that sticks out in my mind. It's just like a picture. I remember coming down the river and coming around a bend. There was a great rock wall on one side. It's obvious that the river had cut that over time. And it, it widened in that area. And all of a sudden, there was not even awareness of current. It was obviously very deep because the water was very black. And the surface was perfectly calm. It was like a mirror. 
and, and the and the the place was quiet. It was just a place of peace. It was the total absence of any disturbance. Peace that we long for many times is that quality in our spirit, in our soul, in our mind that everything is at rest. Which brings me to the second term, rest. Rest, in our vocabulary, is more related to the physical realm. You know, we, we can talk about a restful mind, but we're still more or less talking about peace. But when we talk about rest, we think about our bodies relaxing. We think about the absence of if peace is the absence of disturbance, rest is the absence of what? Work? Would you say work? You know, activity? You, you stop. The Scripture says, be still, be still, and know that I am God. And, and that Hebrew word, be still, is cease striving. In other words, stop working. Just hold on a minute. Just stop. And know that I am God. Rest to us is that, that ability to just kind of kick back and relax. You know, you can rest sitting in a chair looking at a sunset. You can rest taking a stroll and putting everything else out of your mind and all of your work out of your mind. Uh, sometimes I get so tired that I want to rest by laying down and I'm conscious of something my body wants. You know, even as you're sitting there in a chair this morning, it's requiring postural muscles to hold you up. That's why you're mostly sitting like this, not like this, is because you have muscles that are active. But sometimes I just want to lay down and let the bed hold me up. I don't want to use any muscle at all. I just want to rest. You know, rest is that place where there's no work going on. We have some interesting discussions sometimes in our family because, uh, and I'm sure you're like this too, uh, everyone has a little different definition of vacation. If I were to take a poll this morning and say, what is your definition of vacation? Some of you say, ooh, Cancun. You know, oh, I want to take a cruise. Oh, I want to go to the mountains. Oh, I want to go do this. I want to go do that. For me, a vacation is... I don't have any alarm clock, I don't have any schedule, I don't have any agenda, I don't have any plans, I don't have anywhere I have to go. Just let me sleep till I get up, let me read till I want to stop, let me eat when I feel hungry, don't even plan a meal, let's just do nothing. That maybe tells you something about what I do all the other weeks of the year. <laughs> but for me, rest is Really don't have a plan. Just give me a break. Let me relax. All through the Scripture, God holds out to His people these promises of rest and peace. And they're always coupled with faith. That's the caveat this morning. That's, that's, the, that's the kicker, okay? I want to talk to you about rest and peace, but I want to talk to you about it in the context of faith. Because the scripture says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the last number of weeks, I have been bringing to you 
some foundational essential doctrines. We've been talking about things that are the core and bedrock of our convictions as Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ. And you remember Luther's three watch phrases as he sought to bring reformation to the church. And those three phrases that were the hallmark of the Reformation period were sola gracia, by grace alone, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, and sola fide, by faith alone. And in the last number of weeks, I've, I've talked to us about grace and salvation by grace and God's grace in redemption, that it is His pure, unmerited favor toward us through Jesus Christ that has redeemed us. And I've spent the last five weeks of messages that I've preached talking about the core of the authority of Scripture. By Scripture, it is our bedrock, it is our foundation, it is the source of all the faith and life. I want to begin this morning talking about what it means to have faith alone in Jesus Christ, by faith alone. And I want us to recognize that although we frequently think of faith as being the key to salvation, this is how I'm born again, I trust Jesus Christ and I experience new birth. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. In other words, faith is what opens the door to a new journey. It's an introduction. When I was in school in North Georgia, one of my professors, uh, Six Flags Over Georgia was one of the big attractions there back then, however many years ago. And I think it was one of the first areas in the country that the Six Flags theme was built, you know. And so it was kind of fresh in his mind. And he was talking about this whole concept of a life of faith. And he said many Christians are like someone who buys a ticket to get into Six Flags, pays the admission fee, has their ticket punched at the gate, walks inside the door, opens their folding chair, sits down, and stays there. You know, and and you say, what are you doing here? Well, I've come to Six Flags. (laughs) Yes, but you're just inside the gate. Well, I got in. I'm here. That was my goal. I wanted to come. Here I am. And it's like, but there's this whole theme park here. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I just, I just got in. Many believers live their Christian life like that. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they open their camp stool right inside the door. They've obtained their introduction into the grace in which they stand. They've opened the door. They've come in. They sit down and they never explore. They never go beyond that initial entrance by faith to Jesus Christ. And because of that, they never enjoy the benefits and blessing of being in Christ, in the faith, day by day by day by day by day. And what Jesus promises in the midst of our lives is, He says, If you will trust Me, I will care for you in such a way that your life will be filled with My peace and with rest. I will give you a break as I 
lead you through life. There's three passages of Scripture I want us to look at this morning as kind of each telling a story about this. One of them is in Luke chapter 8, if you still have your finger there, beginning in verse 22. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now, I came about on one of those days. Luke is giving us a narrative of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he has been... Um, teaching and whatever around the Galilee and in that region. And it says, it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Can you see the picture? How many of you have been in a sailboat? I talked about a canoe. How many of you have been in a sailboat? Okay, did you motor out or did you sail out or what? You, you sailed, you just did under sail. Okay, so there's no engine noise. And if the lake is calm and everything is smooth, you're sailing along, you know, and Jesus is tired. And the image here is that he has gone to sleep in the boat. Can you, can you go there with him for a moment? Can you imagine that? You know, just rolling, gentle, a little bit of a breeze. The boat's just gliding along. <sighs> Jesus has gone to sleep. That's the picture Luke paints. Did I make you tired? <laughs> you ready for a nap? <laughs> okay. And then it says, And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. Doesn't that sound just a tad sinister to you? A fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. Okay, who's in the boat? This is helpful to realize. There are 12 guys with Jesus. He makes 13. I don't know if there's anybody else there or not, but there's at least the 13 of them. There's these 12 guys. Four of them are professionals. They are fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They've done this all their lives. Their dad did it. Their grandfather did it. They grew up in boats, on the sea, in the ships. They were experts. They knew how to handle the boat, and they got eight helpers. I don't know how much Matthew knew about the deal. He was a tax gatherer. Maybe he was one of those, you know, first century nerds, and he had never been in a sailing vessel. But, but the other, those four and their helpers, I mean, they got plenty of people to handle this boat. And it says, a fierce gale of wind descended upon them while they were on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now, can't you just say, let's say Peter's at the helm, because I imagine that's where Peter would have been, knowing Peter, you know, saying, Oh, John, there's a fierce gale. Would you go up there and relieve that sail, please? James, could you go back to the back and untie that rope? I mean, can't you just see it? Jesus is asleep, guys. Let's not disturb him. Oh, could you bring down the, the sail in the middle, please? Can you see Peter doing that? What do you think is going on? I'm just asking you as a little sanctified imagination here. Don't you think these guys are yelling at each other, screaming at each other? It says the boat was swamped. They began to be swamped. They're about to go down. Water is getting in the boat. You don't have to be a professional sailor to know water belongs outside the boat. Water's getting in the boat. They're sinking. They're going down. The wind is blowing something terrible. They've done everything they know to do. They're screaming and yelling at each other to gain control of this vessel. And finally somebody says, will you please wake up Jesus? 
He's sleeping. Unbelievable. He's sleeping. And so they go back to him and they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. And the image I get is of Jesus kind of rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and kind of looking around and thinking, well, okay, it looks pretty rough. And getting up and saying, quiet, peace, be still. And everything stops. Just stops. The boat's steady in the water. The wind is gone. The sea is calm. Everything is quiet. Even the disciples are going. And then he asks them a very disturbing question. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? It's real easy to kind of make this a Bible story and put it in the genre of the comic book characters you read as a kid, you know, and just kind of relegate it to fiction. But this is not fiction. These are very real men who are very used to life, who in just a moment ago thought they were going to die. They were going to drown at sea. All of a sudden, Jesus comes out of a sleep, speaks a word, everything stops. And he says, where is your faith? And they're looking at each other saying, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? And I want you to think about that this morning. Because in the greatest crises of your life, when you think it's all over and you're going down for the count, there is someone right beside you who has everything under control, who can speak a word and instantly stop the crisis. He has everything under control all the time. They're in a panic because from all they can see, they're about to go down with this boat. And Jesus is saying, where is your faith? In other words, don't you trust me? Now, we could go into a lot of detail about this story and why Jesus wasn't concerned about this particular event because he had a sense of destiny that didn't include drowning at sea. And he knew that was not their end. But his point to them was, trust me. There's another passage over, if you'll turn over to uh, Luke chapter 10, just a page or two probably in your Bible. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. 
Luke is continuing his narrative. They're going around, uh, Jesus is teaching, he's going from place to place, things are happening. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, there, we learn from Scripture that Jesus probably already has a relationship with this family. There's Mary and Martha, and then there is a brother by the name of Lazarus, two sisters, a brother. Um, they, they're living kind of in an extended family situation, and they have this home. And uh, Jesus is in the town, and Martha says, why don't you come home? Let's bring your, bring your disciples, come to my house. Now, what do you do when you invite people to your house? You know, they, you invite them to your house. What do you, what you, probably what is the first thing you say to them? Welcome, come in. Okay, would you like something to drink? Can I make you some tea? Would you like some coffee? Can I get you a pop? Would you like something to eat? Isn't that what we do? That's our culture. We want to make people feel at home. And in every culture of the world, one of the quickest ways to do that is to invite people to eat with you. You want to give them some refreshment. And, and uh, you know, that's just, that's just common. Uh, but in some cultures, it's crucial. If you don't do that, you're being very rude. And so in this culture, it is crucial. You invite someone into your home, you must give them something to eat. This is the culture, it's the custom, it's the expectation. So Martha invites all these guys in. And it says, she welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, by the by, was listening to the Lord's words. So we're fast-forwarding in the scene here. We're simply told, Jesus' disciples go into the house. Okay, fast-forward in the movie. Now, things are going on, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's, by the way, Mary's listening to his words. What's the picture? He's sitting in the family room, in the recliner, and he's talking, and these people are sitting all around him, and Mary is right there, glued on him. Okay? This is the picture. And Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her... To help me. Are you with me in the living room? Are you, are you in the scene? Martha's in the kitchen. How many of you ladies, probably, I doubt it's any of you guys, but how many of you ladies at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner with everybody coming over have had that feeling? You're in the kitchen. You know, the turkey needs to come out of the oven, the dressing needs to be stirred, the gravy needs to be stirred, the sweet potatoes are getting overcooked. The marshmallows on top are already starting to turn brown. And, and you've got to do all these things. And it's like, where's the help? Everybody's out there watching the ball game, you know. And, and the other gals are out there jabber-jawing with each other. Where's the help? This is Martha's situation. And she comes out there and she says to Jesus, Don't you care? Notice how she lays the guilt trip. By the way, people that are like Martha are great at guilt. <laughs> just, just so you know, 
you haven't put that together yet. She lays the guilt trip. Don't you care that I'm doing all this stuff by myself? Tell my sister to help me. Now, I want to tell you something. I would have had a very hard time at this point saying to Martha what Jesus said. You know why? Because I am real sensitive to people's feelings. And I want to be the eternal diplomat. I never want to to hurt anyone's feelings. I mean, I just go overboard trying to avoid that. You know, and what Jesus says to her, if I were, you know, I would have thought about this and I would say, if I say this, Martha's going to feel about this high. But Jesus is far more concerned about Martha than about her feelings in that moment. And this is what he says to her. Martha, your whole life, you, Martha, are always worried about so many things. Mary has chosen wisely. She has chosen the important thing. It will not be taken away from her. This is profound, folks. Martha is following custom. Martha is following culture. Martha is doing what a good homemaker does. Martha is preparing the meal. Martha is getting ready to serve them. She's working hard to be a great hostess. Mary is doing nothing except sitting at the feet of Jesus hanging on his every word. And he says, Martha, there's only one thing going on in this room right now that has any real significance. And Mary has figured out what it is. And I'm not going to take it away from her. When I'm talking, there is nothing more important than listening to me. Are you the kind of person that always needs to be busy? Have you always got so many things going on? Are you always at it? I was having a conversation after we were all done last night. Some of us were standing in the foyer. We were having a conversation about rest. And part of the conversation was very illuminating. As, as one person shared in the midst of that, said, you know, sometimes when I have a day off, and, and um, I get up early before the rest of the family, you know, there's nothing on the agenda, and maybe I, I just want to spend some extra time in the Word, or maybe I just want to do something that I want to do. Maybe I, maybe I just want to do something that I don't have to do. And for some reason, I feel guilty. Do you recognize that? Can you identify with that? That when you are not being productive, you feel guilty? When you're not working, you feel guilty? When you're not busy, you feel guilty? Why? Because something inside of you is compelling you with this ethic that says, I've always got to be productive. Martha was like that. 
And Jesus is saying to her, you are bothered about a lot of stuff. You are always busy. You're always doing something. Mary's just hanging out, listening to me. And she is the one who gets the prize. You are distracted. Mary is focused in the right place. I want to give you permission this morning to take time and sit at the feet of Jesus and do nothing but just gaze upon Him. It's okay. There are a lot of things. Do you get the implication of what's going on? There are a lot of things that you and I do that have no real significance in the long haul. They just don't. They don't matter. Every once in a while, stop and ask yourself a really strange question. Five years from now, who will care? Answer? There are very few things in life that are going to make any difference five years from now. There are some things. You need the wisdom from God to know what they are. But most of them, it doesn't matter. Take time. Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better part. One more story, and then I want to move along to the connection of all the dots. Go backwards in your Bible to Matthew Two Gospels back, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse um, 25. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent and delivered them or revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, the context of this passage, Jesus says, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent, revealed them unto babes. He's talking about spiritual knowledge of God. He's talking about coming to know God, having a a relationship with God, understanding who God is. And Jesus is praying this prayer, saying, Father, I thank you that it's not the really smart people, not the really intelligent people, not the the real scholars that figure this out. It's, It's babes who just come to me and I tell them, because no one can know the Father unless they come to me. I'm the key. Come to me. I'll explain God to you. Do you want to understand God? Do not necessarily do not necessarily enroll in seminary. Don't get a master's degree in divinity if you want to know God. You may have to get that if you want to do something else, you know, like preach. But um, but if you just want to know God, you need to come to Jesus. He's the one that can introduce you and tell you all about the Father. He will reveal the Father to you. Then he says this. It seems out of context. But in verse 28 he says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's interesting that the word heavy laden here is actually a Greek word that comes from shipping. Once again, it's a boat that is loaded 
to the gunwales to the gills, and it's about to take on water. It's right at, I mean, it's one of those deals that if you, if you step to one side or the other, your, your boat's going to collapse. You're right up to the brink. Okay, so it's the breaking point. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the Lord of all, so he can mix metaphors. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of you have have looked into this enough, and you know the background here, that when they were training oxen to carry a load... You know, you take a young ox that's never carried an ox cart or borne a burden before. How do you train them? You put them in the yoke with an experienced one. Because the young oxen, they, they, they make way, things way too hard, and they work too hard at it. And not only that, they might spill and damage the goods. But you put them in the yoke with an experienced ox that's been trained to carry the burden. And the point is, as the young inexperienced one comes alongside the older one and they are in the yoke together, the young one learns how it's done. Jesus is saying, those of you who's, who are just about at the breaking point, come to me, get in my yoke, and I will show you how this is done. Walk with me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In fact, my nature is to be meek and lowly in heart. And it's in me you'll find rest for your souls. What's he talking about? What kind of rest? Well, if you read the context and follow on into chapter 12, you discover that what Jesus is talking about is the burden of trying to be good. Now, if you've never had a thought in your brain about being good, this point is not for you. Okay, I have another message for you. I'm not suggesting here that you just check out on holiness. But for those of you that are concerned about being good, you want to be good, you want to be faithful, you want to do the right thing, you want to, to follow the Lord, the, the whole 12th chapter begins to talk about this conflict of the Pharisees who have religion down to every little detail. You do this on the Sabbath, you do this and whatever, and Jesus is confronting them. They're coming into conflict. He's picking the heads of the grain on the Sabbath, like in your face. I'm eating. Watch. I'm harvesting. You know, and, and, and it's like, man, what's he doing out there with his disciples eating this grain? And then he says, I'm going to heal this person who, who was sick. I'm going to heal them on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, you can't do that. This is the Sabbath. And Jesus says, all you people, you're, you're burdened down with all your religion. You're exhausted trying to be good. Every one of you that are trying hard to be good, come to me. I will show you how it's done. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Here's the Lord of glory. Here is God in the flesh saying, Forget religion. Come to me. I will not put this burden on you. I will give you rest. In every case, there's a common theme here. Okay? Case number one, 
They're in a crisis that's about to cost their life. Jesus, Lord of the crisis, says, trust me. Martha is all stirred up about work and all that she's got to do. Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen to sit at my feet. Listen to me. Now these people are all stirred up about how to be good. Jesus says, you're weighed down with burdens. Those of you that have reached the breaking point, come to me. I am the source of rest and peace in every situation. Every crisis you have in life, name it. It's threatening my life. It's catastrophic. It's the big end. Trust me. I've got so much to do, Lord. I don't have time to, I don't have time to have devotions. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I have got so much to do today. I've got so many things to do. I can never get my to-do list done. How much of it's going to matter in five years? How much is going to matter in a month? I mean, come on. How much of it is important? Mary has chosen the better part. I'm not taking it away from her. Sit at my feet and listen to my words. I'm wore out trying to be a Christian. I, I'm trying so hard to live this Christian life. I'm trying so hard to be good. I'm exhausted. It's just killing me. Well, you weren't supposed to do it in the first place. Take my yoke on you and learn of me. I will give you rest. When did our restfulness get so messed up and disturbed anyway? When did our peace get so out of whack that we are these stressed out, overworked, exhausted, frustrated people? I want to take you back to Genesis. I'm working on a paper right now. Um, most of you know I'm on the licensing committee in our district for people who are coming into ministry. And I'm very concerned about um, people who are applying for credentials. And you start to examine them and you say, do you believe the Bible? Yeah. Um, do you believe you know, in, in the inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah. And then I go to Genesis and I say, uh, do you believe that Genesis is literally true? Well, you have to understand that Genesis was kind of written in a poetic fashion and it wasn't intended to be interpreted literally. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, hold the phone. You, you believe in inerrancy, you believe in Scripture, but now you're telling me that Genesis is a big story. Well, you've got to understand the Hebrew poetry and you know, it's like, no. So I'm working on a paper. Long story short, I'm working on a paper in which my thesis is every important doctrine of all of theology and all the rest of the Bible can be found in seed form in the first three chapters of Genesis. Every important message of the Bible can be found in Genesis 1 to 3. And it's intended to be literally true because everything to do with our life and the explanation of it starts here. Okay? And if you go to the end of chapter 1, I want you to look with me, Genesis chapter 1, right at the end, verse 31. And the Lord God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning 
the sixth day. Notice the order and notice the time we are in the creative week. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made, it's kind of redundant, don't you think? In these few verses, it says about four times, God rested from all the work He had done on the seventh day. The seventh day was the day of rest. And what does it say in verse 31 of chapter 1? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. When did the day period begin in the Jewish calendar, in the, in the revelation of God? It started at night, don't miss that. The day begins at night. See, we don't start that way in the Western world. The day begins when the sun comes up. That's when, why? Because that's when we can go to work. You know, that's when our day begins. Notice that in the scripture, the day begins at night. I don't know how, how many of you are into photography, but if you're into photography and you ever buy any uh, real photographic equipment besides what you can pick up at Walmart or something. You know, you, you've probably heard of B&H Photo or Adorama Photo, those places up in New York that are the big houses. And they're all owned by Jews. And if, if, and they're very, very devout Jews. And if you look at their website, Friday night, and it's a different time every Friday. It's not the same time every Friday. It's a different time every Friday. Friday night, they close. They don't even do web business. You can't place an order. They're shut down until Saturday night. And guess what that time is? It is sunset in New York. It's sunset. They're done at sunset. And they don't do another thing until sunset after the Sabbath. Why? Because evening is the beginning of the day. That's important but what's more important is, what did God do on the sixth day? Go back in your mind to the creative week. You know, he made all the animal kingdom and made this, made that. And then at the very end of the day, end of the day, sun is starting to set. He makes Adam and Eve. And when he finishes, it's the end of the sixth day. And evening comes... What is their first day after they're born? What is their first day? What day are they born into? The Sabbath. Isn't that amazing? They're born into the day of rest. And the first thing they do is go to sleep and wake up the next morning in the rest of God. And their first day on the planet is the Sabbath rest of God. And they're in a perfect paradise where every need they have is met. They just have absolutely... Yes, that's a good question, Todd. They have absolutely no need that has not been cared for. They don't have any clothes. No big deal. 
they're in a paradise that is perfect temperature. They're not cold, they're not hot. They have all the food they need. They have everything. They are in this incredible garden paradise. Where did all the lack of rest and work and toil and all of that stuff come in? If you jump over to Genesis 3 for a moment, verse 17, after they have rebelled against God, Genesis 3, verse 17, then, Adam, then he said to Adam, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, you are dust, and to the dust you're going to return. All the labor, all the toil, all the sweat, all the burdens, all the pressures, all the stresses of survival came as a consequence of sin and rebellion. And they were excluded from the garden. The angel was put there to seal the doorway back. And they were out in a cold, cruel, raw world that was not going to be very cooperative with them. And listen, friends, we live in that world today. We live in that world by the sweat of our brow, by the labor. But you know what? God is not unaware of our problem. He is aware of our problem. He knows our need. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, He says, Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. But there is a call to us. There is an invitation. It's in Hebrews chapter 4. And in case you think I'm making this up, because, you know, people, I've heard a lot of preachers through the years, they go to the Old Testament, they take a story and they build a sermon out of it, and you say, Where'd they get that? That's not in there. You know, they used more than sanctified imagination. They, they have just used the diving board approach. Okay, I'll start with this scripture and tell you anything I want to say. But just so you know that I'm telling you the truth, that what I just said about Genesis and the Sabbath rest of God is not my analogy that I just made up. Look in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. The writer of Hebrews says this, He, God, has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. You remember just reading that? Right out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Okay, Here's the writer of Hebrews saying, God said somewhere He rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage, they will not enter My rest. That's not talking about... Adam and Eve, that's talking about the Israelites going into Canaan with Joshua and, and being unbelieving and stiff-necked. And God says, they're not, they're not going to get into my rest like they're going. They shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, it is what? The rest of God, the place of rest. Those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. They did not believe. But he says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from all his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. What are we saying? God is inviting us to come back to a place of rest. Adam and Eve lived in a paradise where everything was provided. And all they had to do was enjoy God. Their first day was the day of rest. Started at night. (laughs) They woke up to a beautiful Sunday, Saturday, whenever. Sabbath day. They woke up to a beautiful day in the presence of God, and every need they had was met. And the message of the New Testament, this is Scripture, is, come back to me. Are you stressed out? Are you weighed down? Are you overburdened? Are you worn out? Do circumstances of life threaten to sink your ship? Can't pay the bills. My health is failing. My boat's full up. I'm at the breaking point. Do you have so much on your to-do list that you can't even... You need a 27-hour day? Are you so worn out trying to be spiritual that it's killing you? You're just up to the top. You're heavy laden. And the next rule somebody puts on your back is going to be the one that breaks it. The answer in every case is come to me. I will give you rest. Let me have your circumstances. Trust me. Where is your faith? Trust me. Let me me give you something to take home. Very practical. Go home and ask God this question. God, I don't see how in my life I've got time to just sit leisurely in your presence. I just don't see it. So here's my schedule. Just just take get your get out your day timer, get out your you know, your iPhone, whatever it is you got, I don't know. Take it out, hold it up to God. Say, here it is. Here's the list. What on this list do I not need to do? Show me what I do not need to do. Today, right now. You may be surprised, but ask God what you can eliminate. He will give you permission. Okay, I want you to do that. That's, that's a take-home. That's a very practical thing. I don't have a study guide this week, but here's your question. Just get in front of God and say, God, what am I doing that I don't need to do? That in, in a year from now... No one's even going to know if I did it or not. Five years from now, no one will even care. It doesn't matter, but it does matter that I hear from you today. So ask Him. Come to me. Are you worried about your finances? Are you worried about your health? Are you worried about that thing that's going to sink your ship? What is it? He is master of circumstances. 
And I'm not going to tell you necessarily that he's going to stand up in your boat and tell the wind and waves to stop. Sometimes what he wants to show you how to do is lay down and sleep while the storm rages. Because he's in charge. And you don't have to know that the wind has stopped howling to be able to sleep in the presence of God. That's a hard lesson. And I'm preaching to me as well as you. You know, I came in Friday morning so stressed out I couldn't even think straight. But God met me in a time of quiet in His presence and prayer. God met me. God, He gave me a song. And, and what he, he did not say, I'm going to fix it all this second. He said, in my time, I will make everything beautiful. Can you trust me? Give it to me. Can you trust me? I will do this. And that's what he's offering you. You know, you're here this morning. I, I told you if, you, if you weren't stressed, you didn't have to stay. You've all stayed, I guess. You, you're either too embarrassed to leave or you've got some stresses. Okay, whatever it is, we live by faith in Him. Are, are you struggling with sin? You just can't beat it, man. It's just you just you got a habit, you got a problem, you've got something that just gets the best of you. You got a tongue that's just always going off saying stupid stuff. You, you get frustrated and you blow your stack. You, you've got issues in your life that you don't know what to do with. And, and you don't know how to be good. Jesus said, I, I know. I know how to do it. You don't have to. Just come next to me. Let me take the yoke. I know how to keep my cool. I know how to say the right thing. I know how to... Do what is right without worrying about all these externals. Come to me. I will take that burden from you. It's not your job to make yourself holy. It's my job. Come to me. Come to me. So where's your stressor this morning? What's your point? Where are you stuck? In any case, the life of faith is a restful life where you can come to Jesus. He will give you permission to turn off the stove, cover the pots, and just go sit. He will give you permission to do that. He will take the burden of your holiness upon Himself. He is the sanctifier. And He will meet you in your crises. The just shall live by faith. Put your trust in the one who knows you best. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Encourage us. Lord Jesus, you have offered us rest and peace in your presence. Let us by faith this moment reach out to you and take it. And trust you. 
that we live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You have borne the burdens. You've taken the responsibility. You've invited us back to the Sabbath rest of God in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.